Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, Bob Hutchins here. And I have a repeat guest with me today, The Human Voice on the other side of the microphone is Miss Jenny Wise Black. And she is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is a good friend and a colleague and co-author of our book, Our Digital Soul. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Bob. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I wanted to do an update episode for all my listeners, just to let them know, I know we've been talking about our book that we've been writing. It's been taking us, we've been working on it the past year, year and a half. It's been taking us a while, but I think we're getting really, really close. And I am very, very excited um, about what we're doing. So Jenny, I thought we could spend a little bit of time on this episode going through some call-outs in the book and just it'll give a really good overview and teaser and if so people are wondering what is our book about what are we, what angle are we taking it from what sides it is a book that is rich chock full of science and studies and quotes but it's also really accessible and practical so Jenny I'm going to turn things over to you a little bit and I know that you have studied, you speak about, you have help people heal from it in your practice, and that's specifically media trauma. Can you talk to me a little bit about, and to the people listening, what is media trauma and what you've been doing in that field the past few years? Well, from a therapeutic perspective, if you are, specifically from a marriage and family perspective, you're constantly looking at the quality of your relationships are going to be um, dependent on the relationship that you have with yourself, right? That's going to be the, the number one indicator. The relationship you have with yourself is going to impact the relationships you have with other people. And then the ways that the systems function that you live and thrive and work in are also going to determine the health that, of your health. So when we're talking about media, it's almost like it's almost like media is the ultimate family system now where we used to like you get into therapy and you'd be like, um, OK, tell me about your family of origin. And then we know everything about you. Right. That's kind of the, uh, one of the therapeutic lenses. Well, now it's like, who's your we would we named the family of origin that right, because it was the most influential thing in your life. It's how you learned how to attach. It's how you learned right from wrong. It's how you learned like what you were going to do and what you weren't going to do based on um, consequences or rewards. Well, for the average person today, their primary relationship is with some form of media. That's their, their it's kind of like the five people you spend the most time with, like influence you the most. You could say the same about the five five people you follow the most or the five newscasters you listen to the most or um, that's going to determine who you are. And it's infiltrated in such a way that it truly is. I mean, I believe without a doubt, it's a, it's a bigger influence at this point in time than a family of origin, which is a pretty dramatic thing to say. Um, so the sort of opening up with our first call out is that your relationship with media is going to impact every single other relationship in your life. Mm. And, and and not only your relationship to other people, but your relationship with media is going to imp- influence other people's relationship with you. 
before we jump into the call out, what call outs are for everyone listening, they're quotes from the book, meaningful quotes, uh, pieces of sentences throughout the chapters, and they will have their own special um, bold on the side of the page. You, you've seen them as you read through books. They're kind of, okay, here's what's coming in the next chapter, and it's important. So we're going to read through some of those. We're going to discuss them. The title of the book is Our Digital Soul, Collective Anxiety, Media Trauma, and a Path Forward. So you can go, actually, I'm going to mention this a couple of times throughout the podcast. You can actually go to OurDigitalSoul.com, and that's O-U-R, DigitalSoul.com, Our Digital Soul, and you can sign up to... Be notified when the book is out. We might be sending some freebies out to those who sign up to the newsletter, and we're going to put out a newsletter called Our Digital Soul. So lots of things coming. We're excited. We've been birthing this a while, and I know Jenny's excited as I am. So let's jump right into the first call out, Jenny. And it's you've already started talking about it. And it and it's the quote is the purpose in changing our relationship with our phones is to change our relationship to our lives. If we don't have boundaries with our phone, we won't have boundaries in our relationships. It reminds me of that old saying, how, we, how you do anything is how you do everything. Right. So if we don't have boundaries with our phone or with our internet usage or with our social media, is it a true reflection of the boundary, lack of boundaries or boundaries that we have in our relationships? It is a true reflection, right? (laughs) I'm Um, asking you the question. So I would say that when you, unfortunately, it's not really an option to have healthy boundaries. (laughs) Like that's not, it's not set up to have healthy boundaries, right? It's set up because as we get into later on, um, media is made to keep you connected to media. That's its purpose. And that's how it makes money. That's how it, feeds itself. So it's not there to help humans have good boundaries. Mm. So if, if I um, kind of, my brain's kind of going a couple different directions. It's your lack of boundaries with media is going to impact your real relationships, real, the real relationships you have in real time. Right. So I'm unavailable for people in my life when I'm constantly connected to media I, I can't be there and can't be present with the people that I'm with. Mm. Um, but one of the things that we kind of discovered as we uh, got into this research and content is that the actual way that we engage in relationships through the, through most social media platforms is so, it would be crazy. It would be unhealthy. It would be disturbing if we engaged in that way in real life. So it also, we kind of develop these habits, like the example that you gave early on was how, how acceptable it is to stalk someone, you know, just to go, just for me to spend two or three hours one night diving deeply into the last three, four, seven years of someone's social media feed, right? I might get fascinated with something and all of a sudden I've just spent, well, that translates in the real world as being a stalker, right? right. That's like, that's really kind of sick. And yeah. yet it's not sick at all in digital spaces. So what, what happens is that our brains start to have these new realms of what's normal and appropriate and okay. And we don't, 
our brains don't work in a way that when we get back in the real world, we totally can shift and change who we are. We're mm. still the same person in these two different environments. Mm. That's an interesting point because I think, you know, it, it is, there's certain things that are acceptable in the virtual world that are not acceptable in the real world. And I know that one of the scientist studies that, that we refer to, and that he did this actually early on in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s. This was before anyone was really, really affected by this even more, but he already saw it back then. And he called it the online disinhibition effect. And I know you and I have talked about this a lot, but what it is, is when we go online, we somehow think that we can act a little differently. We can hide behind the screen. Um, we can put on a different avatar and almost play make-believe of maybe the person that we want to be or wish we could be, or maybe the rage or anger we want to let out in the real world, we let out online. Whatever the motivation is, I think what I hear you saying is we can't actually do a lot of those things in the real world. We think we can separate them and do them online, but our brains many times, they don't make those clear-cut separations. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Our brains can't just shift because we're in another culture. And um, I think what, what gets confused about is that when you have so much practice, <laughs> like this is, this is a very uh, kind of ridiculous comparison, but it has happened to me. Like if you play like, like Mario Kart, right? So you, like I'm the worst at Mario Kart that I think anyone has ever been. Like I still haven't figured out how to, how to steer, but like you watch your car, right? Bounce off of things and fall off and like whatever. Well, I've actually had the experience of being in my car after that and having to tell myself it doesn't bounce off. Mm. Like, like you are the one who's driving your car. And that's like, I'm like an old person, right? <laughs> and that, and I know, I know so much and I don't play much of that. Like I, I don't, but to even have that thought of like, wait, this car I'm in charge of. And if it hits somebody, it will actually hurt me or somebody else. So that's like a really, really elementary example of like, now take that to all the behaviors or activities that we do online. They just don't have the same consequences that yeah. that behavior would have in real life. And so our brain learns that I get to do this and it doesn't have consequences. And that's how, that's how, um, that's behavioral psychology, right? Yeah. So our brain's just doing its job. We've given it lots of opportunities to practice this and it didn't have consequences. And so it's going to keep doing that and not realize, oh, wait, it has consequences to it if we did that same behavior in the real world. Yeah. And I think that leads, that leads to another call out, quote, harsh trolling comments used to it only exist online. However, as we've become more comfortable with these behaviors, and our lives become saturated with aggressive stories, we're emboldened to act that way in the real world. So again, I think that's an even more practical example. I think the Mario Kart's great, um, but I would take it a step further and say, most of us may have to readjust our maybe our bearings after being immersed in a game, but the reality of the effects of how we treat other people right. um, you know, what's acceptable in a post or maybe something aggravates us. And then we see that person out 
on the street. And we carry that with us, right? Well, and yeah, we talk a lot about certain social media or social media platforms that are based on those business models as being sort of um, the culprits of this. But the the truth is like, I see, I ex- I'm not on social media. I experience this the most in texts. I do this to people too. Like I get angry about something I need to vent and like get, like send a text to just get it off my mind. I'm just going to deal with this or receive those kinds of texts. That happens pretty regularly for most people. And what it does, even and that's, that's, I would say it's one of the most minimal interactions of media. You don't have a, you don't have a business model between you and that text. It really is what I typed and what I'm sending to that person and they're receiving it. But even the fact that they're, I, they get to receive it instantly or I receive it instantly. So it's happening in real time, but I didn't get to see that person's face or the way that they uh, like, oh, this is probably going to hurt their feelings or mm. even what the tone of it was or, or the reaction, those tiny, small micro reactions that make you adjust what you say or maybe make you second guess your um, perspective on something. None of that happens in text. Nine out of 10 times when a client's client or a friend says, my mom said this, my dad said this, my friend said this, it will typically be through text. I'll have to say, wait, was it a phone conversation? Was it face-to-face? Most of the time it's through text. And I've been interested in, that's a whole other study of just the uh, how much conflict are people having through text and they don't know they're not having that the way they're communicating the form they're communicating through is actually more significant. Like, huh, do you have more conflicts over text than you have face to face? But, or on the phone. But the point of that is that the more communicating that we start doing through text and the more we get in those habits of, I'm just venting and getting it out. And I know this is how I, I saw it. And this is what you did wrong the more that is happening in our face-to-face conversations because we're training ourselves to communicate that way and to get our um, resolve conflict that way, which is rarely done. Yeah. Rarely done and rarely done well. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Another, another quote from our book is, the cost of mass media traumatization is everyone becomes the victim of each and every trauma simultaneously. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what trauma is in the context of media trauma, in the context of our book, because the subtitle is Collective Anxiety, Media Trauma, and a Path Forward. So we probably, without giving too much away, but in talking through the context of the book, we define trauma. We actually have a couple of a couple of chapters that goes in pretty deep. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you as the as the licensed marriage and family therapist, and you've dealt with trauma, get into it more deep. But as I understand it from a psychological and an organizational psychologist myself, I think it's not just the big T of uh, something happened to you as a child, maybe somebody was in a war, military, maybe somebody had a, you know, just a horrendous death they witnessed, whatever it may be, we all know what the big T's are and they, they're they very real. But there's also the smaller T's that we uh, encounter on a daily basis that might be vicarious, they might be direct, it might be something that we observe. And that's kind of what we're talking about when it comes to media trauma 
It's things that we observe while we're online, whether on our phones, or in front of our computers, maybe even watching something on television. But, but talk to me a little bit about trauma. And in the context, I know you speak and you've studied it quite a bit when it comes to the actual definition of media trauma. Yeah. So I kind of the most practical application of it is it's when you are faced with a challenge emotionally, physically, psychologically, or mentally that you could never have enough resources to manage. Mm. So it's it's outside of your realm. So when you're talking about the big T trauma, it's, you know, it could be something like a car accident happening and you're and which most people have some connection with that kind of trauma, even if they've seen a car accident happen your brain can't organize it and you don't have enough. You can't fix it, right? You can't solve it. You can't, you're, you're pretty lucky if you, if there is something you can do about the situation. So, um, but let's say you're, you're the one in the car accident, your, your body, your brain, it just can't assimilate the information. And so that's when we move into that place where it gets stored as like almost a frozen um, energy inside of you. So that can happen something like a car accident that can happen something like, you know, September 11th, like you have these, um, these incidences that happen. So in the, in the examples of mass media traumatization, when you have something, you know, like September 11th or a school shooting, you have the, that place, that place in time and history where this terrible thing happened. And that is an, that is the classic form of trauma for the people that are in that space. But what happens when we're all watching, when we're all seeing it, is that we all now are victims of that trauma. In many ways, we're victims of that trauma in even more specific ways because we probably have views of things from different camera angles, from different background stories, that, that the people who are there don't have. They're just having their singular experience of the trauma. That when that happens, we, you now have this whole culture that instead of being able to be healthy and peaceful, um, contributory, hey, how can we help? That instead of like feeding off of our empathy, it actually gets um, deficient because the the people who are in the trauma don't have empathy, right? The people in the trauma need other people's empathy. So when we're all folded into the trauma, we've all lost the empathy and resources that we could have to care for the people who are harmed. Mm. And that is, um, it's, it's something I am very, very hopeful that we can become conscientious about. And like, I'll, I'll tell groups that I work with, like you, you only need to know about the traumas that are happening in the world that you that there is something that you can do about. And that is not about keeping your head in the sand. It's that if we lose that, we've lost how how we recover from trauma as a culture. Yeah, that that's a that's an excellent point because if everybody was in the car crash at the same time, there would be nobody that had the presence of mind and the focus to to really assist. And while that might sound a little extreme in the example, if everybody is watching the same event happen from, you know, even if, you know, I think of January 6th, and this is not a political statement, but everybody's sitting there watching it from a thousand different 
viewpoints. Lenses, yeah. It's almost like we're all there present experiencing it. But even worse, it's almost like you have a front row seat where you're not exactly. there, but you're there witnessing something really traumatic that you can't do anything about. And the anxiety mm-hmm. level is yeah. is rising and everybody's in the same position versus hey, I heard about this happening down the street, or I came to it right after, or um, I may have witnessed it, but I can physically do something about it. Our brains don't aren't given and our bodies aren't given those opportunities when we're just sitting there swiping and going, oh, that's horrible, swipe. Oh, that's bad, right, swipe. Right. Right. And, and our brains, do you think our brains are receiving a compounded microtrauma on top of compounded microtrauma? I do, I do. I, th- I think it's, it, you know, what uh, everybody can relate to is so you see something like that. You see something violent. You see something that like, oh, gosh, you know, what's happening in our world or, um, oh, that, those poor families or whatever. You you're, have some kind of knee jerk reaction to it. And then right after that, you might um, you might get an email from your boss saying you missed a deadline for something that you didn't know. Mm. And, and you'll have a more violent response to that, right? Like mm. you'll have a, a more like your heartbeat will go up. You've got anxiety. Oh my gosh, I can't get in touch with whatever. And so it's almost like <laughs> the, we're, our, our nervous systems are just exhausted. And we don't even have really real categories, right? For what deserves our empathy and attention. Because in, in reality, right, we know a school shooting is more traumatic than my missed meeting, right? That's right. But our bo- but our bodies are are going to be more reactive to the thing that we could actually do something about. Right. And the question is that I often wonder in the context of work and organizational space is what are you carrying with you into that meeting that you were late for? Um, or what are you sending and responding to that after having had a healthy diet earlier of maybe these micro traumas or maybe just living in 2022, but you're scrolling the news and you're going and, and you get, you know, sucked down the rabbit hole. Um, what is that doing to you when you try, you think you can just flip over into, okay, now I got to respond to my boss or now I not need yeah, to go into yeah. this meeting and this it kind of leads to this next one that I want to hear your thoughts on. Another quote from our book, it says, the digital world invites us into a reality where we are the only self that matters and that self is projected onto others. Let's talk about that a little bit. What do you think about when I read that quote to you? Well, first of all, I feel like it's a, it's really a thought based on John Soller's research. I think it launches from that section of the book. Um, and I think that that's kind of what I was saying about texting is that I'm only aware of my feelings, my perspective, what I need, what I want, how I've been done wrong. And I am imagining at that moment that that's all somebody else is thinking about too. How, how is me (laughs) or they're not thinking about me, right? And I mean, you know, Bob, I think you actually introduced me this, to this concept last year. Um, it was that like the world being a mirror, that it's right. a mirror. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and there's no more uh, almost satirical place that we see that than in the digital spaces. Like we are projecting out our own issues with ourselves, right? Yeah, I think we see, I believe it's not an original thought. I don't want to take credit for it, but I, it, it was uh, a moment of self-awareness and it continues to be in my life when I realized that 95% of my issues, the things that I claim are wrong in the world, the people that I may have issues with, I'm not saying all of it, but most of it is simply a mirror of what's going on in, in my internal world. So to make it simple, if I tend to be a very negative person in general, uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, everybody's mean, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. We've all known people like that in our lives. They will find those examples very quickly and the world will become that to them because that's the reality of what their thought life is. It's what they feel about themselves. And in conversely, if you've ever met an older person in their 80s and 90s, I have a mother-in-law like this, Everything she sees in the world is positive. It doesn't mean that she doesn't acknowledge bad things, but she's able to say, um, I saw something beautiful today. This person is such a nice person. I love, I love to see this person smile. It's because that's what's going on in, in her internal life. So if you think of the world like a mirror, most of us mirror out and see in the world and in our relationships really what's going on inside of us, right? So the whole concept of if you want to change the world, change what's going on in you and you'll see the world differently. So to take that a step further into what you're saying, Jenny, that really is, you know, we do that on the phone and it's even harder because of what you said is if we're at a, at a dinner or at a coffee or you and I sitting down having a conversation, we can see each other's bodies, our body language, our faces, we are aware that there's someone else at the table right, right, besides right. ourselves. When we're alone texting or we're, you know. Or seeing other people's lives through Instagram or Snapchat. Yeah, it's just us. Also, you're, it's just you. It's just what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or what that, you want other people to be seeing about you. Yes, yes. That was another one of the quotes that I believe that that we included that we wanted to talk about today is that, like we just said, is we're we're seeing the projection of someone else that nine times out of ten isn't one hundred percent accurate to even start with, and then we try to project ourselves onto that or look at Jenny's feed or Bob's feed and say, "I'm not measuring up to that," whatever it may be. And I, I think that's something we need to really, really think about and engage and do better because at the end of the day, the platforms, um, when we engage with mediums like Facebook and TikTok, we leave our bodies and travel into these virtual spaces. And that's one of the other quotes from our book. Talk about that because I think all of we've we've everything we've talked about so far on this podcast we really need to talk about the going into virtual spaces and existing 
I had told you the other day, Jenny, when we were finishing up on some of the chapters, I really think this book could have, have a second title, or maybe it's the next book, Living in Two Worlds at the Same Time. Yeah. Um, let's, yeah. Unpa- let's unpack that a little bit. Well, I almost feel like that the book could, the only thing the book has to say about mental health and media is is in that quote. So of all the studying that you've done on mental health, psychological health, spiritual health, what is the number one thing that it all boils down to? If you could do this one thing, you would be happy, okay, mentally well. What is it? Be present in the moment. (laughs) Be present in the moment. (laughs) That's it. That is the, that's been the answer since the beginning of time, right? Right doesn't matter what religion or philosophy or type of therapy you do the goal of mental health is to get you in this moment get you out of the future out of the past into this moment so that's that's like one timeline right because my my fear and my anxiety will always be kicked up when I live anywhere but the present because because I'm not made to live anywhere but right here I only have the resources for what I need to do in this moment, I don't have the resources for my future and I don't have the resources for my past because I'm not there. So the nature of media, the nature of social media is that it takes us out of our own lives. So it takes us out in a mental way. Like now I'm paying attention to other people's lives. So immediately, it doesn't matter if it's good, bad, boring. I've left my present moment, which will always cause anxiety and fear. So just just the nature of looking at someone else's life on social media is taking you out of the present moment. You're not in your moment. You're in their moment. So that's one. But the research is just unbelievable about that. It is so powerful that we actually do leave our bodies that we now, we now have evidence that shows we are not in our body. We have left and gone somewhere else. So I like to picture of if I, if I were a body and I was a, my consciousness was like a little person inside of my brain or my heart, like in a little, um, in a little like seat, like my body's the, the airplane and the pilot is inside of me. That pilot has left my body to go be somewhere else. And so my body freaks out because nobody's in here to man the station. Mm. Nobody's in here checking, taking care of it. It's like the teacher left the classroom. <laughs> so um, that, I think the way everyone can relate to that is when you have, when you've gone down the rabbit hole and all of a sudden it ends for whatever reason, you finally turn it off or I guess that's the only way it ends. Your battery goes out. <laughs> and um, all of a sudden, it's like <gasps> a lot. Most of the times you'll hear people take a really deep breath because they haven't actually been breathing. Um, there will be some sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm so hungry. Oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Or there's like a panic. Oh my gosh, I, I was supposed to be at this appointment. It is like you have left yourself and then you land back and there's this moment of reconnecting to your body and your reality. And it usually happens in somewhat of an emergency mode because you weren't there paying attention to it when it was giving you the subtler clues of like, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll go now. Yeah. Well, 
you know, we would be amiss without touching on, and again, I'm excited to get this book out. Again, go to ourdigitalsoul.com, ourdigitalsoul.com to sign up, to get notified and sign up for the newsletter. But I want to jump and just say, I, I think we would be amiss if we didn't talk about the platforms themselves. Jenny, you know that one of my heroes in media and media theory is Marshall McLuhan. And he mm-hmm. was a media theorist that spoke a lot in the 50s, 60s, even the 70s, way, way ahead of his time, predicting a lot of this, the things that we talk about. But one of his famous that he's famous for is he says, the medium is the message, meaning that that the mediums, whatever they may be, and he was talking about newspapers, televisions, and radios. Now we're talking about the internet and other, you know, uh, OTT streaming, whatever it may be, they really govern and determine what the message is and how it's interpreted and ultimately what effect it may have. And for example, the way that you communicate and how people receive things on a text on a phone to phone can be very, very different than the way that, say, you would communicate a similar message on TikTok, because one would be a video that it's implied, it's either interesting or funny. Whereas on text, it's you have to read between the lines, there's nuances, you use emojis to give it some emotion. Um, And you could, you know, we could keep going on and on. But the point is, Uh, these platforms make money off of us. And one one of the quotes that we have is, if the business model is based on keeping you there, the platform you use is using you. Why is that so significant to understand? I think we intuitively know this and we just kind of like, yeah, yeah, of course, it's a capitalistic society. Everybody has to make money, but it's a free platform. There's something else going on that we have to be aware of. Why is that important? Yeah. Well, it's it's not a free platform, right? So um, we talk about this early on in the book that we are currently in an attention economy, which is that most people are making money by how much of your attention they can get. And, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter who's watching. It doesn't matter what you're watching, right? It could be incredibly great content. It could be really destructive. It could be stupid. But if you're focused on that screen, if they, they call it in the industry, um, it's eyeballs. It's all about eyeballs. Whose eyeballs do we have on us for the longest? So anytime your eyeballs are being taken, that your consciousness is being um, guided by something or someone who doesn't know who you are or care who you are, you are paying truly the highest price a human could pay for something. Like our attention is what sets us apart as humans and the quality of our te- attention and what we do with that attention is it's, it's why we, it's how we can create. It's how we are educated. It's how we love. It's, um, it's everything. It's everything mm. we have to offer as humans. Mm. Um, even our money, right? It's really all about, where does my money go? My money goes where my attention wants my money to go. So it's an, it, it's our consciousness. And to give that over to anyone, 
So if, again, if we were talking about this in the real world and I had completely given over my consciousness to one other person or even to the company I work for, people would be like, that's creepy. She's brainwashed. She does everything that company wants her to do. Or wow, she's totally obsessed with that relationship. Like it would, it would be so noticeable how unhealthy that would be. And yet to give our consciousness over to business models that make money off of however much I pay attention to them is it's just incredibly dangerous. It's a, it's a, it's, I mean, the reason you got into this work in the first place was from a place of seeing how easy, how easily we're manipulated when we give that much attention, we will buy and do the things that we are told to buy and do. That's exactly right. And just to reiterate those who may just started listening to this podcast, my background is in digital marketing. Actually, I still do that. Um, It's what I have my career on for the past 20 years. And I love many, many aspects of it. I love the consumer psychology. I love uh, helping businesses market their products in ways that are positive and and life-giving and enhancing to their customers and or supporters. Um, But I also know, too, that how easy it is to manipulate people and or create messages that can move people to act in certain ways. And so that that alone is very, very unique. Yes, television has been around for 100 years now almost, as has radio and, and print even longer. And certainly you can do that, but never in a time in history have we had the intelligence, the technology, the algorithms that someone can easily be convinced of something, can be radicalized, and then on the other side, can they can be used for a force for good, which I know that's what we're pushing toward. Well, but, and the reality is if, if you have if you've given your consciousness over to something, you can be manipulated however they need you to be manipulated. If right. you if you remain and the, the goal I would say of of all of this work is that you remain in charge of your consciousness and from that place you choose how to engage or respond with the media that is in your life. That's that's, right. that's the difference. That's the difference. You can't be manipulated if you are in charge of your consciousness. That's great. That's great. One of the things that we also talk about is kids and parenting. I know both of us have have children and and various ages. And one of the quotes that I wanted to talk about today was, taking away a child's devices is not a consequence. In fact, a break might feel like a relief to them. You know, Jenny, I'm I I go to restaurants, I go to Disney World with my family, wherever it may be, and I'm I'm constantly reminded that for many young parents, an iPad or a, or an iPhone is is a built-in babysitter. You know, kids have their own; they have their own like little kitty cases around them, and they carry them around. And while the parents are eating at a restaurant, the kids on it and. And, and, and I'm not totally 100% against some usage of that. It can be very helpful for education and other things. However, as we said in this quote, sometimes a break might feel like a relief for them, even though today's parents see it as a consequence or as a punishment. Can you unpack that well, for, <laughs> for me a little bit? 
when you said that, I thought the truth is, I think parents feel like it's a consequence to them. Right. (laughs) Exactly. If they have to take away their kid's iPad, they're like, oh no, I'm going to have to deal with all this. So just this morning, I was at a coffee, I was at a coffee shop with this, um, at the table near us was, um, um, dad who was doing work. I'm assuming he was doing work on his laptop. And next to him was his little girl. She's about three years old and she was on her iPad. And she's kind of looking around and then she'd do something on the iPad and then she'd look around. And then I heard her say, I'm done now. And she pushed, she, she turned it off, looked at her dad and said, I'm done now. Wow. And I was like, wow, I, that tells me a lot. So then she kind of gets back on he, the dad's kind of, you know, how you are when you're working with somebody. He's he's interacting with her in that way. Um, and then she's talking about whatever she's seeing. And he's like, uh-huh. And then he's going back to his work. And she's going back to hers. And as I walked by them, I was like, that's, that's a little girl who's not been babysat by an iPad. Mm. Like, she she's on the iPad right there. But she knows... You could tell she was looking around. She wanted to go do something. She was she was interested in everything else. And the iPad for her was like, okay, when are we going to be done with this? This is fine for now. So that tells me a lot about how she's parented. A tremendous amount. That mm. that's it's they don't use it. They don't use it because that's not what she goes to, right? That's not her primary. All I need right now is to for you to hand me my iPad and I'll be quiet for hours. Yes. 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 That's good. Well, Jenny, I appreciate you taking some time out. I love the uh, beauty and the birds in the background there from wherever you are. So, you know what, Bob, it reminds me of our, we did a COVID, uh, we did a COVID interview during quarantine. Yeah. And if you want to go back to previous episodes of Jenny and I on The Human Voice, even before that, you can go back to way back. I believe this is the third or fourth time that you've been on. But the book is coming out, and it's going to be called Our Digital Soul, Collective Anxiety, Media Trauma, and a Path Forward. You can go now to OurDigitalSoul.com, sign up for the newsletter, sign up to be notified as soon as it's out. Um, you're going to listen to this podcast at many different times. So forgive me if it's dated, but right now we're talking on beginning of July in 2022. And if all goes well, the book will be out in the next probably six to eight weeks. So uh, at the end of summer, beginning of fall, and we're very, very excited about it. Jenny's already out on the road uh, speaking some around media trauma, and we're excited to get this book out for you to you. So please go to OurDigitalSoul.com and sign up so that you can be notified, get on our newsletter list. We're going to be writing and putting things out around this topic if it's of interest to you. And if you have a question, please feel free to go to the site and sign up and communicate with us. So Jenny, any closing comments before we close out the podcast? Um, I I think that what I, well, first of all, I'm, I'm so excited to be doing this with you. And it's really fun to see how just thinking of all the episodes that we have done together and how this has evolved. That's really you don't see it as it's happening. So that's pretty fun to see. But I think that there's so much negativity about the conversation of media. And I feel like what I would really like people to see is this is this is an opportunity to heal a relationship 
a really significant relationship with yourself in the world. And it's, it has, it's almost from a therapeutic perspective, it's almost the easiest. It's hard to heal your relationship with your family of origin, right? It's those things are like certain types. It's hard to recover from trauma, from traumatic events. This work around media is actually really simple. Um, And the work that you do in it, the, the ways you work healthfully around it have very, very dramatic positive benefits very quickly. And that's just not something we get to see or feel a lot in the therapeutic world. And so I just want to kind of leave with that. Yeah, that's a really, really good word. Instead of seeing this as something that's negative and um, maybe overwhelming to so many of us, because we do have a tendency to to be overwhelmed, and that's kind of the whole point of it, uh, I think there's also an opportunity that once you recognize it uh, and you can name it and put it in context, then there's an opportunity to heal from it. And use it wisely, like we're talking about. So thank you for ending with that. Again, Jenny, I'm going to let you get back to your work. And until next time, hopefully next time you're on the podcast, the book will be out. Right. It's going to be out. I know. Uh, Thanks, Bob. Ourdigitalsoul.com. Ourdigitalsoul.com. Talk to you soon, Jenny. Bye, Bob. Bye.